Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Ballot counting for the 2020 election is officially over in Arizona. Now it's time to count the money spent. This week, Arizona made its election results official. We know who won the races, but what did it take to win? Money drives campaigns no matter how big or small. In Arizona, much of the attention on election spending was focused on the U.S. Senate race between Martha McSally and Mark Kelly. Records filed with the Federal Election Commission show that more than $146 million was donated to the two campaigns between January 1st of 2019 and October 14th of this year. The total will be even higher when final reports are submitted. Where did all that money come from? The FEC says Arizona residents were the biggest donor group for McSally, giving her eight of her $56 million in donations. For Kelly, FEC records show California residents were his biggest donors, chipping in $11 million. Arizona was in second place, donating more than $9 million of his $89 million haul. Both Tucson-based candidates found a hometown advantage, with Tucson residents giving them the most donations within Arizona. Stacy Montemayor is with followthemoney.org, part of the nonprofit, nonpartisan National Institute on Money and Politics. Her group released a report on campaign donations for the 2020 election cycle, which Montemayor says broke records at both the federal and state level. On the state level, the money raised by candidates increased across the board this year compared to the last two presidential cycles, which are comparable election cycles. We saw in out-of-state and small dollar donors, um, pretty much their proportion of contributions stayed steady. But what was really fascinating is, is underneath the there were huge underlying shifts in who was making those contributions and that they shifted towards Democratic candidates getting a larger share. And then um, in general, uh, women took up a larger share of contributions, kind of what we talk about as getting closer to gender parity. But what was fascinating was that um, women doubled their contributions to Republican candidates, while male donors shifted more towards Democratic candidates. And that was really fascinating to see. You mentioned out-of-state donors both uh, in the federal races for the U.S. House and Senate. Did we see an increase in out-of-state donors, people who, individuals living in, say, uh, Montana, donating uh, to people running in Arizona, or was it the same? There was an increase um, for everyone, Senate and House candidates, both Democratic and Republican. Everyone kind of increased their share at the federal level. At the state level, the numbers, the proportion of money that came from out-of-state donors stayed steady. Um, but who was making up those numbers completely transformed. When you look at it by party, Democrats in 2012, 33% of the out-of-state money 
was going to Democrats and 66% was going to Republicans. That is basically completely flipped by 2020, where 74% was going to Democratic candidates and only 25% was going to Republican candidates. So you saw when you when you compare the state versus the federal, you saw this huge shift at the state level at the underlying what's actually going on, whereas the overall numbers stayed pretty steady. Um, in the federal government, you just generally saw this steady um, increase. And I'm looking at the numbers, like, for example, probably the most marked increase is uh, we've got Senate Democrats um, going from about 53% up to 80.3%. So, so quite remarkable. And that's, um, we think that's a result of kind of the high profile uh, federal candidates. And then you've got um, entities like uh, WinRed and ActBlue who make it really, really easy for somebody to just use their phone and, and give $20 or $200 or whatever to a candidate that maybe is, you know, three time zones away from them. Let's talk about the legislature, the, 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 the state races, not even the statewide races, because especially in a presidential year, they they get a little less uh, attention than they do in other years. It looked like in your report that legislative, be they state house uh, or or state senate races, nationwide, we're we're getting more money this year, just like everybody else. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny in that. It was a record-breaking year. It went from 1.6 billion to 1.9 billion, but unfortunately, fortunately, whatever. Um, when you are also simultaneously looking at the federal fundraising, which just was like astronomical, it fundraising doubled since 2016 at the federal level. So, and uh, CRP. Uh, Center for Responsive Politics, their analysis is is estimating that there's going to be about $16 billion in federal races this year. So poor state races, when you compare them to that, like, you know, it's not like quite as headline news, but it's still, it was still an absolutely record-breaking year for legislative, state legislative candidates. For all the races in Arizona, it looked like candidates brought in a couple hundred million dollars total. Most of that was for the U.S. Senate race here. I would assume that is not surprising at all. Um, no, the U.S. Senate races uh, were incredible this year. I believe that election, that race uh, was one of these seven races that set um, independent spending records with all of these seven races that were record breaking. Um, they raised at least $81 million um, <laughs> per race. And it, it's, it, it, I mean, I'm like stammering. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, again, part of that is the small dollar donor engagement. Part of that is is out-of-state donors. Part of that is um, the Democratic Party was really effective in um, mobilizing and engaging donors, um, basically as an effort to kind of uh, root out Trump and his, um, his supporters in the Congress. But that's not to say, like, 
President Trump and Biden both had record-breaking fundraising. So it's like it's it's like comparing the federal versus the state. Like everyone's breaking records. It's just you know some are more astounding, I guess, than others. It looks like in diving into your website that the the on the individual donors, it was thousand dollar plus donors, not the twenty five dollar donors that were that gave the most this cycle. Yeah, you're you're going to see kind of like a a general statement is that you're going to see in most elections, most individual races or individual candidates, you're going to see that the bulk of the money is coming from, you know, people writing bigger checks. Um, it varies when you're looking at state races. It varies state to state based on what the um, uh, contribution limits are, place like Texas where they're unlimited versus my state, Montana, where we have very low, like couple hundred dollar limits on what someone can give. But in general, you're always going to see the bulk of the money coming from people writing, you know, $500,000, $10,000, $50,000 checks. What we saw this year, it, it started in recent cycles, but this year it really came to the forefront, was that these folks giving these small dollar amounts, which we defined as $200 or less to a single candidate, their share of the overall fundraising grew. That was Stacy Montemayor with followthemoney.org. Not all campaigns bring in tens or hundreds of millions in donations. In Arizona, statewide candidates like those running for the Corporation Commission or the legislature have the option to participate in clean elections, which limits spending. We talked with Gina Roberts, the director of voter education for the agency. These candidates, if they qualify, then they can receive clean funding for their campaigns and they can focus more on connecting with voters and the issues as opposed to fundraising. And when it comes to that funding, so people understand, you don't give just a flat lump sum to the candidates. It also has to do a little bit with how much their opponent raises if they are not clean elections candidates, correct? Um, that's how it used to be. So we used to have matching funds, but that went away. And so the way it works now, and these numbers are adjusted for inflation, um, but there is, if, if the candidate qualifies, so they have to collect a certain amount of what we call $5 qualifying contributions. And the point of that is to show that they have the support from the voters in their district. If they qualify, then yes, they do get a, a flat uh, sum for the election that they're qualified to run in. So if it's in the primary election, then they get a check cut for the primary. And then if they do win their primary and they advance to the general election, then they get another check for the general election. But again, they have to go through that qualification process and they agree to forego any special interest money and they have limits on contributions and expenditures that they can, that they can make. They used to also have to participate in debates, at least the legislative candidates. Is that still a requirement? It is. It is still a requirement. So participating clean elections candidates, they are required to participate in the debates that the commission sponsors. And we sponsor debates for both statewide and legislative candidates. And debates really serve the purpose of informing the voters about who these candidates are, what priorities and issues are important to them. But it's also an opportunity for the candidates 
to connect with the voters. And we saw that was especially important this year during the pandemic because our debates, we transitioned to a virtual format. And so since we sort of lost the traditional pounding the pavement, knocking on doors and connecting with voters, this safe virtual environment provided both a benefit for the candidate and the voter to connect with one another. And we saw great engagement from it. So how many candidates participated in clean elections this year and how does it compare to years past? Sure. So this year, let's see, for our candidates, we had in the primary election, 36 candidates that ran clean and and that dropped down to 30 in the general election for 2020. And it's, you know, it's pretty on par. So when we look at the 2016 election, just for comparison purposes, um, we'll see about the same number. So in the 2016 primary, we had about 40, 41 candidates that ran. And then in the general, that dropped down to 37. So the thing to remember is that um, in the presidential election years, there's only one statewide uh, uh, candidate race on the ballot, and that's for Corporation Commission. When we look at our midterms, that's where you'll see all of the statewide, such as governor, secretary of state, attorney general. So we typically have higher numbers in those midterm elections. When it comes to results, this is the week we're certifying our election results, so everything is official. Do we know how clean elections candidates did versus non-clean elections candidates? Did the majority win, the majority lose? Was it kind of a split? You know, it it really depends on the district. And so you'll see if you look at, for example, Legislative District 26, I I believe that was um, what they called themselves the clean team or the millennial clean elections team. You'll see success there. And again, with the corporation candidates, um, all of them ran clean. So the ones that were elected were were clean elections candidates. Uh, So, you know, again, it's it's just going to be a mix. And, you know, how the voter looks at a traditional candidate versus a clean elections candidate, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what that looks like to the voter. When we send out our voter education guide, we include all candidates that are running for statewide and legislative office, and we label their funding type. We label that they're a traditional candidate or a participating clean elections candidate. And I can tell you that voters often call us and want to know what's the difference, what does that mean? And so we explain it really has to do with how they funded their campaign. And so I can tell you some voters are interested in and, you know, the difference. A couple of years ago, Arizona voters passed Prop 306, which made changes to the Clean Elections Commission and the Clean Elections System. Uh, before we get into how that worked in this election, which was the first one it really had kicked in for, explain to people in case they don't remember what the majority voted for, what Prop 306 did. Sure. So Prop 306, this was a ballot measure that went to voters in 2018, and it really had two parts to it. So the first part was it impacted how the commission um, handles its rulemaking process. So the Clean Elections Commission, we are, again, we're a state agency, but we are an independent state agency, and we were passed by voters in 1998 through a citizen's initiative. And in that initiative, voters gave the commission rulemaking authority, and they outlined the process on how that rulemaking occurs, the public feedback process, if you will, and how those rules go into effect. Prop 306 um, changed that process to the extent that it basically subjects the commission's rulemaking procedures to regulatory oversight. So that was one component of Prop 306. The other component, which I think is probably more about what we're discussing here today, was candidates um, who run with the clean election system and what a permitted expenditure would be with them when it comes to political parties. So Prop 306 uh, basically prohibited any expenditures from uh, clean elections funds going to a political party or to a private tax exempt organization. 
do we know how those Prop 306 changes affected candidates if they did at all? So one of the things that uh, the commission does is we audit all of our candidates. So all of the clean elections candidates, they have to undergo an audit to ensure that they uh, their expenditures and, and their contributions were all in accordance with the Clean Elections Act. So we're undergoing our audits right now. And as of right now, we are really aren't seeing much of an impact from Prop 306. Because prior to that, the commission already had a rule in place that impacted how um, a candidate could make expenditures to a party's. We've been using clean elections for about two decades now in Arizona. Do you feel like it's made an impact improving election transparency in the state for the candidates that use it? I think so. As I mentioned, we audit all candidates. And so how often do you get to see that type of audit? We're looking at their bank account statements. You know, we are having, and, and it's not done by commission staff. Audits are done by an independent third party auditors, professional auditors who come in and they're looking at the books. And so I think that provides a sense of transparency and public trust, knowing that these candidates spent, um, it, that they handled their expenditures and their contributions in accordance with the clean elections rules and laws. And so I think that the system offers much more transparency in the realm of campaign finance and elections. That was Gina Roberts with the Arizona Citizens Clean Election Commission. Arizona's U.S. Senate race will go down in history as one of the most expensive, but not all the money came from individuals or even went to the candidates directly. The Campaign Finance Institute says outside groups spent $81 million on the race. The money was almost split evenly between the candidates. About $38 million was spent on behalf of Mark Kelly, and about $42 million was spent on behalf of Martha McSally. That was in addition to the money their campaigns spent. But does money equal success? For that answer, we turn to University of Arizona political scientist Samara Klar. She says the results of the 2020 election show a clear victory for the Democratic Party. We have two Democratic senators now, which we have not had since, I believe, 1952, if my memory serves me correctly. Arizona has voted for a Democratic presidential nominee for the first time since 1996. And I would say even if we look at our ballot measures, there is pretty broad support for, I think, what a lot of people would consider fairly liberal ballot measures, legalizing recreational marijuana, that passed, um, increasing a tax to increase funding for public schools, that has passed. So I think the um, 2020 election in Arizona really was quite a victory for the Democratic Party, certainly uh, above what they've seen in recent years. Yet when we look at registration, Republicans still dominate, but there are those independents out there. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because one thing I noticed about Arizona that's a little unusual is there are, there were many more ballots cast for the Senate race than for the presidential race. Now, this is really sort of counterintuitive. You'd think that if someone's going to come out and vote, they're probably going to vote for the highest profile election, the presidential election, and then maybe abstain from the lower elections where they don't feel as strongly. But we really saw the opposite. We saw a lot of people coming out to vote for Mark Kelly and then not voting for anyone uh, for president. My early look, it it seems as though a lot of these people who are voting for Kelly, but not for either presidential candidate, are conservative-leaning independents. This year voted for Mark Kelly, who was really seen as a very centrist candidate, didn't want to support Trump, but also weren't going to support Biden, who was seen as considerably more to the left than Mark Kelly. Um, So I think that Kelly really won uh, with the help of these sort of conservative-minded independents. 
Um, Biden, I don't know if he got quite as much support from more conservative voters, but he got a real turnout from Democrats and absolutely uh, independents as well supported Biden over Trump here in Arizona. Talking about those conservative-minded independents and, uh, and others, Arizona has this history of split ticket voting. Two years ago, the state statewide voted for Doug Ducey, a Republican, and Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat. We saw in other statewide races this time, Republicans did well for the Corporation Commission, while at the same time, Mark Kelly, a Democrat, Joe Biden, a Democrat, won. What is it about Arizona and split ticket, especially compared with the rest of the country? A large percentage, you know, or a non-trivial, I should say, percentage of Arizonans voted for Trump, Kelly, and legalized marijuana. I mean, just these combinations that I'm not saying they're nonsensical or irrational. Surely everybody has perfectly rational reasons to support, you know, whatever selection of candidates they support. But it is sort of a non-traditional way of thinking about candidates. We we had um, split ticket voting in Arizona on two levels. We had people who voted for largely, I would say that the biggest incidence of split ticket voting in Arizona seems to be Trump plus Kelly, um, because Kelly did so much better than Biden did. Biden won by a much, much smaller margin in Arizona. They didn't, they don't go to the polls and just vote down ballot all the way. I mean, Arizonans really are thinking carefully about each of these races. It's, I find it really commendable, actually, that, you know, it seems as though we have an electorate really engaged. We're really analyzing each ballot measure, each each race, and supporting things that maybe don't make, I don't want to say don't make a lot of sense, but aren't the easy way to go. Sort of this route that requires a little bit of thinking. And um, I love that about Arizona. I think it's great. <laughs> Before the election, you did a survey of Arizona voters with your colleague, uh, Christopher Weber, looking at attitudes of voters in this state. What did you all find based on what we were just talking about, really? Well, Arizonans are really quite a moderate group. I mean, you know, Arizona has this sort of zeitgeist of independence. People here really view themselves as independents. I think John McCain really not only uh, illustrated it, but I think also kind of helped to to motivate it. I mean, um, Barry Goldwater is sort of this old school Arizona politician that was kind of, uh, you know, off the, out of sort of unusual for his party, of course. Um, and then of course we have candidates like Kristen Sinema, who is absolutely a Democrat, but a moderate Democrat, a Democrat with sort of more um, unorthodox views relative to the rest of her party. So what we found is that most Democrats do, and Republicans in Arizona, view themselves as moderate and really want candidates who espouse this moderate ideology. Mark Kelly did a great job, a really effective job, putting him out there as a centrist moderate candidate, and he was rewarded for it. Arizonans see themselves as moderate, and what we found is they see Democrats in the state of Arizona as more moderate than Republicans. And even on certain issues where we wouldn't maybe nationally expect crossover, like immigration and the wall, you and your colleague found that Democrats and Republicans agree. Yeah, absolutely. So what we found is that both Democrats and Republicans in Arizona have views that are pretty out of step with the national party. 25% of Democrats in Arizona said that they actually support the border wall. Republicans, by contrast, are actually more liberal about immigration than what we see at a national level. Republicans um, 
a majority of Republicans believe that there should be a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants who arrived here as children. So Arizona voters have pretty nuanced views on things. They're really not in step with the National Party. Mark Kelly really benefited by showing himself as out of step with the National Democrats. And I think Martha McSally walking in such lockstep with Donald Trump was really hurt by that. When it comes to the nation, we are without a doubt extremely polarized right now. Is this permanent? Well, there's two ways to think about polarization. One is ideological, where Democrats and Republicans might have um, really opposing views on issues. At a mass level, when we're talking about voters, we actually don't see so much of that. That story is a little overstated. Americans at the mass level agree on a lot more than we think. Now, at the elite level, elite Democrats and elite Republicans are really quite polarized when it comes to issues, but not actually so much regular voters. But the second level of polarization people talk about is something we call affective polarization, which is a personal dislike or distrust that Democrats have for one another. That we do see growing at the um, at the mass level. But again, I think that there is a lot more evidence of a desire for compromise than we often think. Recent work shows that both Democrats and Republicans really do want compromise. They, they reward politicians for it. And that when they are encouraged to think about out-party members as just being regular people from their neighborhood, people they might know or see, then we see those levels of dislike really dropping dramatically. So I tend to be an optimistic person, but I do see um, a more positive way forward. I do think that a lot of the polarization we have been finding will become more muted. Let me switch gears for a second into money. The final spending is still being tallied, but by all accounts, at least in Arizona, it looks like the U.S. Senate race broke all kinds of records. We know there was at least $81 million spent by outside groups on that race, according to the Campaign Finance Institute. Did all of that money really make a difference? You know, um, it's a really great question as to whether or not advertisements make a difference at all. Um, in this kind of a race, both Trump and Biden were so well known. There probably weren't a lot of voters out there who hadn't heard of them or didn't know what they stand for. But I will say that turnout was huge. Um, and that could be for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's hard to say, really draw a causal claim here. There's a lot of people who came out to vote because Trump inspired passion and fury on both sides, people who loved him and people who hated him. But the fact is, a ton of money was spent on ads. A lot of people came out to vote. I don't know. There's going to be so many analyses going forward. The next decades are just going to be filled with academics analyzing what exactly went on over these last four years. Um, but it does look like, for whatever reason, turnout was absolutely massive. And I just hope it stays that way. That was University of Arizona political scientist Samara Clark. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.